back to Christian's Colloquy. I'm Christian, and I'm so glad that you could join us today as we have a very interesting topic with me here. As you can see on your screen or in the title, if you're listening as a podcast, I have Lu Yi. Lu Yi, welcome aboard again. How Hello, are you doing? Thank you. Doing all right. How are you? I'm well. It's, it's so nice to have you on again. For those who maybe are new to the channel or haven't seen it, Lu Yi and I had a conversation quite some time ago. It was one of my earlier interviews. We talked about Anglicanism, the Book of Common Prayer, and we got a bit into fasting. So that's a very interesting conversation. If you are interested in just a foundational sort of look at Anglicanism and what it's about, I recommend you check out that interview. Lu Yi does a fantastic job. And I think I asked some good questions myself. So I, I recommend so that. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. But uh, as uh, people can expect, the conversation continues. We have a lot more that we could talk about in this realm of issues and theological points. But uh, today, this is the beginning of sort of a maybe a series or a little bit of a project. As uh, a lot of you who are listening or watching are aware, recently, uh, Prince Philip of uh, the Commonwealth countries, uh, the, the husband of Queen Elizabeth II died. And that was a, a big blow for a lot of us. I know in, in Canada, that was something we talked about a lot. We mourned. Uh, I know uh, for people around the world in Commonwealth countries or who are interested in the Commonwealth in England, and I know Anglicans globally who have that connection, we're talking about it and thinking about it. So today I thought, why not get started talking about the kings and queens of England and their relation to religion. I know that's a question we often have. We're often thinking about it. And now I think we're thinking about it again. So today with this episode, I have Louis on. And long story short, we're going to go way back to the origins or the foundation points of what today we typically think of of Anglicanism rooted in the English Reformation. And we'll be talking about those early English kings of the English Reformation period that are often either talked about in a specific historical light or are pinned as maybe good guys or bad guys, depending where you're coming from. So Louis is going to be talking about Edward VIII or Henry VIII and Edward VI. I think I got those numbers right. Edward VIII, not a fan. But... Edward VIII, not a fan. Forget that guy. No. So we're talking about Henry VIII, Edward VI, and Hopefully I don't confuse them as we speak. There, there's Henry's, there's Edward's, there's James, there's Charles's, and there's all sorts. But we're talking about those first two that we associate with the English Reformation. And then we will see what we have in terms of future interviews. But anyway, long enough of me talking, Lu Yi, why don't you just introduce us to the figure, the personality, or the history of Henry VIII? Who is he and why would we be talking about him now? Well, um, I think uh, Henry is uh, best known for uh, his <laughs> his history with women and right. its intersection with uh, the religious history of England. So, I mean, um, you know, tired, six kids, wired, six wives. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, <laughs> oh, boy. But... Uh, yeah, so I, I think uh, I think a lot of people who are not well acquainted with Anglicanism do um, think of the history of Anglicanism as something that was um, political, and by political they mean bad, right? Um, or you know, um, 
or that it was just a matter of uh, being a papist without the without the pope part because you, you make uh, you know henry the the new pope and that that's how it goes um so i think uh, that that's something that um is good to revisit because i think uh, a lot of these a lot of that is myth making by either papists who certainly have a have an interest in this question uh or by um other other people who are not papists but uh want to want to have a dig at anglicanism right so so just very briefly when you use the term papist i know some people might not know the term and other people might think of the term and go oh why is he using that what 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 is that term referring to what is the maybe the history of that term who are we talking about here well we're talking about people who uh would call themselves roman catholics or Mm. um you know people who are i mean i just think i'm think of them as uh, the the groupies of the papacy so right okay so so roman catholics and it's the association with the pope in rome the papacy so right. and they would have an issue with henry and the english reformation you mentioned that oh, it, it, it would be what, what what's going on with henry why henry specifically would they have an issue with what what did he do or what was he about well it was under henry that uh the church of england uh, threw off the shackles of bishop of rome so um naturally if they can if they can claim that your sect originated at this time and not with the foundation of the church and your sect was founded in the circumstances of a dubious um, quest for a son and a dubious divorce then uh, then they're able to paint this picture of uh of the English Reformation as something that should never have happened, as something that um, led to the kind of cultural decline that um, that we might see today. Right. So, so it really is. Uh, it's brought up as a way to crack at the foundation of Anglicanism as a as a movement or as a perhaps a denomination, using that term uh, with theological conviction. It's sort of say, Hey, it started with this guy trying to find a wife who could have a son. So how, how could it really offer anything as a robust, uh, Christian organization or group or right, sect or right, whatever it right. might be? So, so we, we hear that a lot. I know I I've heard that in, when I was taking classes at the university of Toronto, a secular school, we were doing English history and they presented it as, yeah, Anglicanism is, if you look at the history, Roman Catholicism without the Pope. And I think a lot of that goes to what what they say Henry did and what he was about. So maybe broaden the pr- picture for us a little bit. Was Henry, was that the single-minded issue for Henry? Was that what all that it was around the start of Anglicanism? What, what else informs Anglicanism? The Church of England, really, I guess, to use that term, and their, their divide from the Church of Rome. What, what's going on there? Well, so I think in terms of the... In terms of what was going on in Henry's mind, of course, um, you know, uh, toward the beginning of the Reformation, you know, in response to Luther, Henry was uh, very down on that, and he, you know, he even got the title uh, <coughs> Defender of the Faith from the Bishop of Rome because he had written stuff against Luther. Right. Uh, not a promising start um, for the sympathizers of uh, the evangelicals in England at the time. Um, but meanwhile, even before this uh, 
even before the marriage stuff, the marriage troubles happened with Henry, uh, Thomas Cranmer had, uh, you know, gone to um, <clears throat> gone to the continent as a diplomat. He'd uh, secretly married <laughs> um, the the niece of a reformer. So mm. I think it was, uh, yeah, I don't remember which one it was, but uh, anyway, um, so. There was this stuff already going on. I mean, this this ferment was affecting all of Europe. I think in in our own time, we tend to think of these these hard lines between uh, papists and Protestants, but at the time, it was just a movement that was um, taking hold in many parts of Europe. People were talking, and even the people that we call, you know, that we associate with the papists now, people like. Uh, uh, people like Pohl and Bonner and uh, uh, what's his name, um, Gardner. Uh, <clears throat> these were some uh, figures later on um, of the reaction against um, the Reformation in England. But at the time, there was just a wide spectrum of views because um, people were just talking and, and the Council of Trent had not happened yet. Um, so a lot was just very much up in the air. Uh, so when when this uh, Henry thing started, uh, yeah, I mean, basically he he was the second king of his dynasty, um, and this had uh, this had happened just after the Wars of the Roses. Um, the dynastic succession of uh, his father Henry the Seventh was not really that secure. I mean it. His, his claim was not actually that strong, but he'd won a civil war. Um, so in those circumstances, yeah, you, you certainly want to uh, not descend back into the Wars of the Roses. Um, so naturally, the, these are going to be background concerns. Right. And, and that, that really, uh, to, use, to use the term, it complicates our, our understanding of the Reformation <laughs> history. And it, it really, when, when you think about it, in the common telling of the narrative, oh, Henry needed a, a, a new wife to have a son. That misses it was a that. real skirt chaser. Yeah, exactly. Or, and, that, and that's how people really present them. But there is yeah. that rich political history going on, those concerns. Yeah. But also, the, it, it's undeniable that the, the Reformation was sweeping across Europe, that these thoughts were out there. It wasn't just Henry arbitrarily saying, hey, new wife, and uh, I guess that means new religion. So here it is. There really is a fluid relationship going on, and especially in those early days when the hard lines weren't being as clearly drawn as they would be at around uh, the time of Trent where these things were, were formalized. So I, I guess the question, knowing a bit of this complicated history and knowing that that might be better known in Anglican circles where there's a vested interest in understanding where you come from, especially defending yourselves from either uh, Roman Catholics and their claims and maybe uh, other Protestants, dissenters and their claims about uh, Anglicanism and, and that kind of thing. So how would an Anglican today, speaking about perhaps your specific stream of Anglicanism, which I know you're, you're deeply invested in uh, the, the 39 articles and that, that robust uh, early tradition that uh, might reject later moves to other sides. So the prayer book tradition, I know you're a fan of the prayer book. So how would someone in your perhaps narrow stream that sticks to the roots of the English Reformation, how would you speak about Henry or how would you view Henry in the context of your faith and identity today? 
I would say, first of all, this is not just the history of those who call themselves Anglican. I think uh, mm -hmm. it's important that this part of the English Reformation belongs to everyone. So it belongs to Anglicans, it belongs to the Presbyterians, it belongs to the Congregationalists, it even belongs to the Baptists. Mm. So, um, so I think if we're able to, um, to see this as part of our common history, then it's not something that that becomes like this this Anglican scandal that nobody else has to deal with, uh, because it's really some of the early stages of um, the Reformation that we all share. Mm, right. So, and and that I'm I'm glad you said that. Where I think Baptists and other groups need to appreciate the common origins. And I know I've been doing a little bit of work on that. Where it's easy to establish, oh, this history. Look at the the moves later on and see it as. Ooh, I, I like I, I need to pick that apart or I need to disassociate. But I think that that's a great place to start healthy dialogue when we do you disavow Henry VIII? <laughs> do you disavow? So it would be lovely if we didn't talk like that, but instead appreciate hey, canceled. Yeah. We we don't cancel Henry, but better appreciate, hey, we have a, a common origin here where hey, we trace back to this English church and people who desired further reformation, or perhaps uh you could say uh maybe a bit sectarian. I know we'll we definitely have we have different perspectives on that. We could talk about those another time, but that that helps to understand that he is broader than what we call Anglicanism today. He is a figure in English Christian history and English religious history, and that's worth considering. So uh, maybe just a, a brief question. I don't know if you've come across this before, but uh, people will often say that uh, the Church of England under Henry was truly. Uh, just the Roman Catholic Church without the Pope. And it's as simple as that. You already alluded to that there was a conversation going on, that there was uh, uh, different movements back and forth and people's minds would change. Henry, or, yeah, Henry had voices that he was listening to and sometimes not listening to. But uh, Henry, as we know, wasn't always acting as you would expect a Roman Catholic to act. He has that that bit about the monasteries that people will sometimes talk about and, and, and a few other things, but uh, maybe are there any issues related to Henry that you are aware of that you wish other people knew about, or you wish people better understood about Henry? Yeah, I think uh, it's important to realize that Henry, I mean, he wasn't like a top tier intellectual, but he saw himself as someone who, uh, you know, lived among intellectuals, was in that world. And so when, when he had his marriage troubles and all that, um, you know, the, his, the question of his annulment was something that was debated all over Europe. Mm. I mean, even, um, I think even Melanchthon, uh, Philip Melanchthon, uh, one of the Lutheran reformers, uh, had had suggested maybe he should uh, maybe he should consider having two wives. Oh, interesting. Instead of instead of getting rid of one of them, and and that was so people were were thinking about alternatives to um, the 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 path that he finally took. Hmm. Um, he he was just not convinced that that was going to work because um, he was convinced that. Uh, that God had cursed his marriage because it was a fake marriage because his wife was uh, had been the the wife of his brother, which, as we know from the Bible, uh, is not allowed because uh, you know 
John Baptist had confronted uh, Herod Antipas about exactly the same thing. You can't right. have your brother's wife. Hmm. Interesting. And and that really does add a, a maybe a, a question. I don't know if you know the answer. I, I'm just thinking about this. Would, would Henry himself, would, would he have read these papers being put out by Melanchthon and other, other figures? Would he have heard those arguments and, and weighed them? Do you know anything about that? I think so. I think like, I think there were agents going back and forth between England right. and the continent. Um, so people were actually writing directly to Henry sometimes, mm. uh, suggesting this and that. Uh, or even if they didn't, they, they'd be writing to his advisors, uh, right. Cranmer among them. Yeah. And, and that, that really is interesting. I, I would love to get my hands on some of that. I imagine like people suggesting multiple wives might look at the patriarchs and, and see how they how they did that. I'm not sure if that's the greatest example, but it might might address some of those issues. But it'd be interesting. In the end, in some other place, Philip of Hesse actually did end up having two wives. Right. Which which I I, I remembered hearing something about that. So there that was something that happened. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that was not I mean, of course, Europe had a, a monogamous norm formally, but you know, of course, men, some yeah. kings would have. King, kings shape. especially, I imagine. Yeah, <laughs> a, little, a little too much. Some of them more official than others. Right, right. Okay, well, well, that helps. And that's something I think people, when they think about Henry and think about this history, recognizing that it wasn't just a man guided by a particular part of his, his body or a, a particular desire for a son. It sounds like he had a real strong religious conviction there that... Right. Uh, May, may have grown over time or maybe it was played up we it, we can't read his heart but we could certainly understand that there's more than just what is often presented oh henry liked all the roman catholic stuff but just wanted son well there's a lot more going on yeah. politics religion and personal conviction so that that helps uh to, to i think i think encourage people to get dig deeper into history i know for a lot of figures that's something where we're better at now where we're not satisfied with the one-dimensional narrative we want to hear both sides and that's that's a project i would encourage so keeping keeping us going here edward the sixth i think that's his number yes it is uh Yes, he is also another major figure of Anglicanism before that period of Elizabeth. And that's, of course, uh, I, I believe may, maybe I'm, I'm overstepping here, but I think Elizabeth is really a central figure in what we have today in terms of Anglican formularies and, and that kind of stuff that sets the trajectory with her and the theologians around her. But before yeah. that, Edward, big figure, I know myself and a lot of other more dissentery, hardcore, reform, Puritan kind of guys. We we love we love Edward. I, I'll jokingly call him my Jos my Josiah, and it's, so it's, do I. So so do you. So so we love Edward here. Love love Edward here. Let let's talk about maybe our common appreciation about him. Why why does Edward the the boy king or all these other terms he had? Why why does he stick out in this history despite dying so young? What what was he about? I think for for one, he had a, a clearer idea of uh, where the Reformation was going. Um, I think mm -hmm. Henry uh, had indeed unleashed, uh, you know, things in his during his quest. It was not just uh, the analogy with uh, with what John the Baptist had uh, uh, lost his life uh, criticizing 
um, Herod Antipas for. Uh, it, it was also under Henry, I mean, it had also unleashed questions of um, questions of who the supreme governor of the church in this realm is. So not the Bishop of Rome, but the king. Um, and people were talking about, you know, analogies of of the Old Testament and how, you know, Josiah killed priests, uh, Solomon deposed priests, you know, um, all these things that um, that show at least that having the king or having a king do these things in a Christian commonwealth is not at least intrinsically contrary to natural law. Mm -hmm. So there was these kinds of like two kingdoms uh, issues um, related to, to uh, justification by faith alone and what the relation is between um, between the heavenly kingdom and the earthly kingdom, both kingdoms of Christ. Um, so there were these issues. And even during the lifetime of Henry VIII, there were the 10 articles, there were the six articles. So uh, these Henry himself had waffled on some of these things. He'd gone kind of toward Lutheranism and stepped back from Lutheranism. Uh, but uh, in the reign of uh, Edward VI, uh, the Reformation in England became much more discernibly a reformed movement, um, as opposed to just a, a, a sort of Lutheran or Lutheranizing uh, change. Uh, it took on a much more reformed shape. Right. And, and that, that's something I think uh, people today, I, I hear Anglicans discussing their history. And of course, it does often take the shape of well, which which monarch will we closely align with? Well, I'm more <laughs> I'm more in favor of the 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 early days where it was more Lutheran or some people, and we we know some guys like this who are all about that reform period, and later on people like the more middle of the road between uh, Geneva and Wittenberg, and then of course we know some people who like the the much higher end, and they'll they'll really appreciate uh, either James or Charles, one of them a lot more, and uh, I think it's. Uh, I, well, I, I know you have an appreciation of the. Well, Caroline after Henry, Divines. they're all reformed. They're they're after they're all, they're all reformed, but they they <laughs> they take on different flavors, and people will speak of them in, in different <laughs> ways. Do. So maybe thinking a bit more about Edward and this reformed connection, and uh, maybe this transition from a more Lutheran period. Uh, I know we've spoken a bit about that, how the the English Church, as it was becoming more and more reformed, and perhaps aware of that sought connections with the continental churches and that would be I, I know one of your your favorite uh figures later on he would uh, carry on that tradition uh, uh attending uh, the synod of dort and we will talk about that in the future i'm sure but what what were some of these early connections between the reformed church of england during the period of edward and maybe the continental reformed churches who were some of the big players there on on both sides perhaps yeah, so it looks like early on in um, under Edward the Sixth, uh, some of the big connections were actually with Zurich, hmm. um, and I think that's that's a neglected part of the Continental Reformation as well because I think uh, I think some people want to ignore Zurich because uh, it's associated with Zwingli and uh, you know um, Presbyterians or whoever want to be associated more with Calvin than with Zwingli, but actually, right. um, yeah. After Zwingli, his successor Bullinger was very, very influential um, in England. His uh, his decades were uh, required reading in the universities. Right. Um, so, um, so actually, one of the commonalities between Zurich and England 
is the role of the magistrate in the church, mm. um, which was much more emphasized in both places than it um, tended to be in Geneva or Scotland or some of these other places. Right. I interesting. And, and I could say coming from my, my studies into the Swiss Re Reformation, it was interesting to see how certain English figures, uh, Bishop Hooper, I believe, or, or someone along those lines. He he loves Wingley, but he was sort of recognized um, among his peers as a bit more radical. But seeing those connections and seeing that connection on the issue of the magistrate, I think that again adds a layer where the Church of England wasn't for, at least uh, in this period, wasn't a, a isolated body or totally disconnected. It was part of the, the broader movement of reformation in those conversations, which I think a, a lot of people today, and I know maybe I'll let you speak to that in a moment, where uh, there's a lot of controversy over names in Anglicanism. Are we Protestant? Are we Reformed? Are we Catholic? And we're, and I know you would claim we're, we're all those things, but how we're all those things is a, it's a bit of a, a tricky question. But it seems to me that recognizing the broader conversation, not the isolated story, would help perhaps clarify some of that, those identity questions. So maybe you want to speak to that and in what way was the church of england or is the anglican movement today connected with a a broader sense of catholicity and the the big term right now some people would be aware with is reformed catholicity can you maybe define that or unpack that or speak to how that relates to you today well i i think i'd start by first mentioning that um anglicanism being protestant and reformed is explicitly in the oaths that uh, Queen Elizabeth II took mm. at her coronation in 1953. Right. Um, she swore to uphold the Protestant and Reformed religion by law established. Mm. So I, I don't think many people would know that or, or realize the significance of that. That's amazing. Yeah, you can read the script online. Um, yeah. You can read the script of the whole coronation. I'll, I'll, I'll link to that down below. I'll make sure to grab that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, to me, there is, there is no question of this, this, this has been the norm from the Reformation all the way until 1953. So, um, some people may be revisionists and want to downplay the Protestant part, downplay the reform part. Uh, we are Protestant and reformed. Now, mm. what exactly that's, that's going to look like is a different question. Um, so, uh, yeah, I've, I've already mentioned the, uh, the connections and the commonalities with uh, Zurich, but um, one of one of the other things that um, I think, as the reformed movement was developing a certain way in later years in Europe, um, I think it seems to have been the opinion of at least some of the clergymen and certainly some of the bishops that. Um, that the Protestant movement was maybe not taking the right turns. Mm. Um, so it's less of, and I think from the perspective of the people who took those turns, um, England is going to look less Protestant because what they think of as Protestant is their own experience. Um, whereas from the Anglican point of view, it's it's we who you know carry on the the, the truest, best uh, Reformation tradition, and it's uh, some of these other people who uh, have taken maybe some some turns that we disagree with, and we we would hope that they'd um, return to a more 
let's say central reformation tradition rather than diverging in what we might consider to be strange directions right right and and that's where we will often have those hard conversations but maybe an even harder conversation is that term catholic so uh is the church of england is anglicanism is that rightly understood catholic where people of course are going to point out how could a church of england or how could a group named after the angles and the saxons how could how could that be a catholic church how does that make any sense maybe you want to speak to that a little bit what are you getting at with that term yeah well as bishop van mildert said in the 18th century the church of england became protestant so that she might become more truly catholic mm. oh that's a big and, claim <laughs> yeah and and what he meant was that by going through the reformation um, it was necessary that England do this in order that it might return to the true doctrine of the apostles and of the early church, the, the same thing that's taught in the Bible. Mm. And that is what defines the institution and the organism that Christ founded, not, you know, not the fripperies of the Bishop of Rome with his with his uh, groupies in red, but uh, mm. and, and their their lace. Oh, their lace garments and 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 trinkets of god knows what with 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 ostrich feather fans and red shoes and kissing of feet but uh you know those things are things that none of the church fathers would have recognized as christianity and we just want to return to <laughs> reject modernity and <laughs> return to tradition but right. but but really we're um the, the goal of catholicity here is or of the catholic what we consider a catholic reformation is to return to the thing that we recognize uh from the church fathers i mean um it it's uh the thing that i mentioned to uh to a lot of romanists is one of the people that you recognize as a pope and a saint, Gregory the Great, was also the same man who, when he heard of the Bishop of Constantinople calling himself a universal bishop, he said any bishop who calls himself uh, a universal bishop, basically that, that, that savors of Antichrist. Mm. Yeah. And so we we agree with him. We want to return to the pure doctrine of those first centuries uh, wherever we can find it, especially when there's agreement among the church fathers about what really is the substance of the Catholic faith. We want to have that. We want to have the creeds. We want to have the the saintly lives of these people who, who dedicated their lives to the gospel. Mm. Yeah, and, and that that really speaks to I, I suppose the the more well, how can we distinguish perhaps uh, the more moderate reformed movement from the more we could call them radical reform movement and not not using those terms in any in trying to communicate anything more than we have a more a softer movement and perhaps a harder movement. I don't know how to phrase it, but I, I think I'm not sure I'd put it that way either. But the, you know, the, yeah, what, yeah. What, 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 whatever I'm trying to say here. But uh, I, I think the the main thing about the perhaps the mainstream reform movement in the Church of England before the Puritans being that that further fringe, perhaps, or the people seeking further reform is that uh, there's a stronger draw to uh, the early church and being in conformity with them, where I think the Puritans and a lot of 
other more perhaps radical reformed figures certainly shared that draw to the church fathers, wanted to talk about them and be in line with them. They weren't perhaps as connected to some things. They weren't as willing to, to hear them out or perhaps try to assimilate it. They were, they were quicker to, to say, hey, we don't see that. So, and and that, that I think is a place rather than dividing over that, that could be a place of having great conversations over, well, what do we think about uh, so-and-so here? Or what do we think about uh, this council here? And how do we make sense of that? So, that that's the kind of stuff I think we need to be to be talking about before we just say, eh, those guys are all about the church history. Yeah, those guys are all about forgetting the church history. I think when we go to our own history, we see a, a lot more of that kind of conversation going on. So, but before ending here, I, I just want to ask now, we, we have a figure like Hen, uh, Henry, we have a figure like Edward, and we know that uh, l- later on after that, we have Mary who... Uh, yeah, she she's interesting. Ooh, yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, she, Bloody Mary earned her name with the the persecution of uh, reformers, and a lot of people had to flee to the continent. And that that's a history, of course. Uh, we recognize the talk about the fluid fluidity of the narrative that there was atrocities on both sides in a lot of situations. There's no point in running from that or saying that it was only one direction, despite it could feel like that sometimes. But uh, may- maybe just very briefly, I didn't ask you about this before, but from that period of Mary and her reign, are there any figures or tidbits that that come to mind as like, hey, I wish, again, people knew about this or appreciated this? I know a lot of those people were fleeing to the continent. Are there any perhaps Anglican theologians who made it to the continent that were formed there and that then came back or anything like that, that we should know about? I think there were a lot of um, reformers who, second generation reformers in uh, in England who, uh, like John Jewell and some of the others. Mm. Um, John Knox was involved with uh, with the Anglicans as well. Um, Interesting. And I, I, I think there, there, was, um, there was some controversy in, um, I, I don't remember which city it was, maybe Frankfurt. Um, where, where there, there were some exiles who wanted to stick with the BCP, mm. and there were some exiles who wanted to, um, to to worship uh, in a way that was more similar to maybe the locals, um, and so the these disagreements uh, were brought back to England uh, after these exiles, and and so you you had a broad range of people who'd gone to different cities in Europe. Um, who experienced very different things on the continent, and at at the death of Mary, when they when they returned under Elizabeth, that was they brought all their experiences back, all their struggles, and all their you know all their old fights. It's very human, right? Um, so then then you imprint some of these uh, struggles upon uh, upon England at large, and uh, you might get a lot of drama, which right and that that's where uh coming from my my baptist uh upbringing and my tradition today we'll we'll often look at those times and start to talk about the puritans at that point and those guys who are perhaps more strongly connected to those roots they had in the continent and of course john knox uh yeah he went he went on to be quite quite a figure in scotland and he had certainly some strong opinions about a few things but that that's interesting to think about and i think that encourages me there's probably so many stories that we don't know that would be worth getting to know of these not only these people themselves but also what they experienced and how that might have influenced and 
when you think about it, I think the biggest struggle for, for people understanding Anglican history and history at large is not only seeing different movements at different times, but also recognizing at the same time, even within the same camp or group, you have different people bringing their experiences, their thoughts. And a lot of the times we see conflicts defined by their individual conflicts or what we see today as a unified movement was actually the bringing together of various thoughts and various experiences and various perspectives. And that, that's, a, that's a history worth exploring. But uh, Louis, thank you for introducing a lot of these points to us and getting into some of those issues in a big way. We discussed so much. I think people who are interested have a great foundation to learn more, to, to think more, and to hopefully have conversations of their own. But before we end now, I, I want to ask, are there any final concluding thoughts about anything related to our discussion today that you would like to share or a final encouragement or a recommendation? We, we love recommended reading. So, so anything that pops into your head? I think uh, just that history is stranger than fiction sometimes. Mm. Uh, even when we track John Knox, um, he went back to Scotland and wrote the, the Scots Confession with five other guys. But and, and, you know, people think of Knox as this, you know, firebrand anti-Anglican, uh, or, or at least this guy who's contrasted with Anglicanism. But uh, the Scottish Episcopalians, up until, um, up until basically the, the early to mid-19th century, were using the Scots Confession, written by Knox et al. as their own confession. Wow, I did faith. not know that. Wow. And the Scots are, you know, considered to be like the most, you know, high churchy of the Anglicans. So uh, that's something that's really, I think, worth uh, thinking about, that, that all of these people considered themselves to be reformed. And the things that we look at today and we say that doesn't look reformed uh, may not be at all the things that people at the time looked at and said, this is not reformed. Uh, mm -hmm. they, they might have been totally okay with something and thought, yeah, that, that's reformed, but that that thing's not. And we're like, in our day, we may be like, what's the big deal? That that looks fine. Everyone does that. Right. Wow. And, and that, that really, I, I can imagine where we're projecting and we often uh, will accuse others of doing this, but I'm, I'm sure we struggle with it ourselves. I know I do where look at what we have today and project that upon the past where I, I know you you like po posting some reform scholastics or uh, I saw William Perkins quote today where it, it's uh, he's saying something or they're saying something and you're like, oh, that that doesn't sound quite like I would expect or what I'd say, but we're often reading these guys in light of what came after and we need to appreciate either the development or just how people themselves viewed themselves at the time and, and give them that given that courtesy, I think is the main thing so yeah. that we can better appreciate them. But Louis, thanks for sharing that. And thanks for coming on today. Thank we you. we discussed so much. And again, I, I hope to have you on again soon. We could get into some other kings and some some other queens and what they were doing and how they relate to our our walk in faith today as as truly both of us here as a as an Anglican and a Baptist where we're descendants of this this shared history. And uh, unfortunately, it truly is unfortunate. So much of Baptist history has been defined by uh, resistance to a lot of the things you would uh, consider <laughs> consider good and right. I've, I've been working on Baptist in the, the prayer book and 
it, it's hard to appreciate the prayer book when it's oh it's because of the prayer book and it being, <laughs> it being common that baptists had so much trouble and working through those issues and i know i we we were talking earlier you have some uh projects that you might be working on soon or coming out soon about different prayer books and things like that so we have more conversations to come. So everyone, I, I hope that if you have any questions or any comments about this episode, and especially for Lu Yi, uh, uh, that you would leave them in the, the comments below that I, I'm sure he'll check them out. I'm sure we'll be talking about it in, in Discord servers or wherever we are. So please get in, get in touch. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I hope that everyone watching now will join us again next time here on Christian's Colloquy. Anyway, take care. <laughs> <laughs>